Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk Golf Podcast, where we walk you through the industry's untold stories, brand reviews, history lessons, and swing lessons from industry legends to those fresh on the scene. We'll carry you through the world of golf, so you grab your bag, strap up, and enjoy the walk. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another week of Enjoy the Walk Golf Podcast. We're excited to have returning guest Barney Adams on the show to talk about his journey within the golf game that has led him to the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. We'll talk about who he was inducted with this year um, and what led him into uh, that induction. So, Barney, happy to have you back on the show. Uh, how are things? I, very good, as a matter of fact. I <laughs> At, at 83, I can get up and, you know, go to the kitchen by myself and so on. So I'm doing pretty good. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm happy to hear you can get to the kitchen. <laughs> That's a major move. I love it. I love it, man. Well, like we said, uh, returning guests, we're, we're happy to see you uh, continually be recognized for your accomplishments in the golf industry. Um, with that being said, you know, getting inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame this year, um, what was that like to be able to kind of be recognized for the lifelong work of, of what you've done in the golf industry? Initially, you know, of course, you're, you're very pleased and, and, and so on. And then you kind of think about it for a while afterwards. And I don't really have a good explanation to be very honest with you. you know, it's, it's not something that you, that you work towards. You know, I don't, I didn't spend my years in the golf business working towards getting in the hall of fame. Uh, the fact that it happened, because I said before, it's, it's the kind of thing I, I believe that you, you appreciate more as time goes on. Yeah, I, I related a lot to a, a video I saw of uh, of Kobe Bryant talking about his perseverance in the basketball world. And, you know, he didn't ever play to be a Hall of Famer. He played to, you know, beat Michael Jordan's numbers or win the game that day. And, and it seemed like the day in and day out perseverance is what got him there. And I, I imagine through your journey and in, in you know, Adam's tight life fairways and um, the different fitting manuals you worked on throughout the years that it was a day in and day out journey rather than a, you know, looking out into the far scope of things. Yeah. And I was extremely fortunate to be working at something that I really enjoyed. I mean, I had a passion for what I was doing and that's, that's a big deal because you, it's very hard to put up with the ups and downs especially the downs if, if if you don't have that passion for what you're doing for sure i know you you were able to do it a, a very long time within the industry starting out at, with adams golf in 1990 um was there anything prior to starting adams golf that really got you into the game Where like were you a lifelong advocate of of de really designing golf clubs or how did that really form itself into adams golf and getting you started well about 70, that's seven to zero years ago. Uh, I had a job at a golf course. I was a gopher, you know, and the, the procedure at this course was when people finished playing, this was before golf carts, I might add, they, <laughs> they put their push carts up against the, the side of the clubhouse. And then my job was to take them inside, clean the clubs and arrange them so they could get them out the next day or the whatever the next time they were going to play. And I was, as I said before, I was 12, 13 years old in those days. 
And I remember then, and I remember now, as I was cleaning the clubs, especially for the, the, the better players, and I, who, I knew who they were, the long irons were always clean. <laughs> and I'm just a kid, and I'm thinking, well, why are you spending money on these long irons if you don't use them? Because they didn't have grass stains on them or ball marks on them to speak of. And I suppose that that one, I know that's a, that's a silly thought, but it has stuck with me all these years. And it, it probably meant that I had a, a interest in golf equipment, and that was uh, the first, uh, you know, cogent moment, we'll say. It definitely seems like, you know, you were thinking ahead of your time as, as larger companies always continued to <clears throat> just make the same old five, four, three irons, right? They never tried to innovate. They just kept making the butter knives and, and really just kept pushing them out the door because people were buying them. Um, you know, when, when you started Adams Golf and, and kind of saw it into a different direction um, and the company grew so quickly into the, the fairway, fairway wood design and, and almost, you know, the hybrid design that most people still use today, um, where did you see that innovation kind of come to light for you? How, how did that innovation lead to Adams Golf? I was a club fitter, uh, and back in those days, there were very, very, very few people doing actual club fitting. And my job was to help my customers uh, benefit by having clubs that fit their games and having more, you know, a better time on the golf course. It's I, I, I don't want to bore everybody to death, but my my. my uh, I, my, my view of a set of golf clubs was very different than what was normal at the time then and almost at the time now. The word set, you have a set of golf clubs. What is that? You have, let's take irons, for example. You have three through wedge, four through wedge, something like that. And if you think about the objectives of a set of irons, it's to create a series of parabolas where the ball leaves the ground, goes in the air, comes back down to the ground, and then you'd select another club, and it would do the same thing, only a slightly different distance, let's say 10 or 12 yards. I never believed in that. Uh, I believe that you, if I could design a club, let's say for you, and then we're doing irons for the sake of argument, and we decided that we established specifications for an iron that was the longest iron that you could reasonably hit. Once we were done with that, and now we wanted to make another iron that was not quite as far, we forgot about the first one. I was not interested in matching up a set. I was interested in the ball flight. So I would design around ball flight. And not so surprisingly, over the years, I got to tell you a funny story. Uh, Bernard Langer went on our staff, uh, you know, many, many, many years later. Now, here's Bernard Langer, one of the great uh, technicians in the game of golf, especially for equipment. And he said to us, he said, I will play your clubs, but you've got to match my clubs. This is what I'm used to using, and I don't want to start over again. And we said, we understood that, and we said, fine. So what would you expect with Bernard? You, you would expect a perfectly matched set of irons, right? You know, loft, lofts, lies, and so on and so forth. Well, the truth was, they were the worst set of irons we'd ever take, we'd ever looked at. <laughs> the, the, uh, the six iron or the seven iron was longer than the six iron. 
The lofts weren't the same. There was no progression. But he had done exactly what, in my mind, is the way to have an optimum set of clubs. He knew where the ball went with these clubs. And that was always my objective. What about the golf ball? Because, again, and I hate to, I don't want to put all your viewers to sleep, but the golf ball sits in different environments. For example, back in the early 90s when I was doing this, uh, if you bought a driver, it was pretty common to buy a 135, a set of woods. And the woods, the, the three and the five wood, looked like mini drivers. They had a, a, a deep face and, and so on. You could tell, oh, yeah, that's a set of so-and-sos. Well, again, the environment for hitting a golf ball, you have ball on tee, right? That's a driver. And you design a club to optimize for ball on tee. Now we put the ball down on the grass. And we have to have a club that's optimal for hitting the ball off the grass. It's a completely different environment. And you have to look at it for the environment in which it's being hit. Forget what the driver looks like. So my screwy way of thinking about things was to make clubs for shots on the golf course. And if it was a fairway wood, then let's make a fairway wood that's applicable to the ball being on the ground, which means sometimes a very tight lie. Because I could, you know, we all know to play golf that sometimes the ball ends up in a spot where there's very little grass around and the, and the design of a club that would hit the ball out of say a, a much deeper lie doesn't apply to that or doesn't apply as well. It, it challenges your, your ability to perform. So I always looked at them as, as individual challenges. It wasn't from a set standpoint. Well, it reminds me a lot of a conversation we recently had. Uh, we interviewed the founder of Edison Golf, uh, Terry Kohler, who's making his wedges and the soles on his wedges. And he kind of talked about a lot of the same deal, right, of, of why design a golf club that should be universally for every golfer when you're trying to hit one particular shot or you're trying to hit a certain, you know, tight lie off of a fairway or, or something to that sort. And mm -hmm. it, it brought me back into research of seeing what Hogan did with a lot of his prototypes and how he was trying to design clubs in a, in a similar fashion of, you know what, we're trying to design, you know, one club for one specific thing. And I think as you talk about, you know, how you got into that philosophy, it reminds me a lot of the prototypes that Hogan used to design way back in the day. Yep. Uh, I kid this. I get a lot of interviews uh, people ask me questions about Hogan or say Lake Calloway or Carson Solheim and so on. Well, the reason I get these interviews is not because I'm so worldly or I'm so smart. I'm the only one that's still alive. So if oh <laughs> want to talk about those days, they're pretty much <laughs> limited in who they can contact to do these things. I wrote a story one time about uh, custom fitting of the future. And in my mind, custom fitting of the future you would, this is the easy way to do it, but you would walk into a room and you would make a, a, a enough golf swings to collect data. Or you would wear a glove that would collect data. But whatever, and this is using, as I said before, modern technology that would allow a complete diagnosis of the way you swing the golf club. Speed, angle of attack, all the things that affect the golf ball. Once that's done, and that data is done, then we feed that data into a unit, and it 
spits out, it prints golf clubs. It's the, 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 <laughs> the technology of the future. And it will, print, it will print a set of golf clubs, which, like I said before, don't necessarily look like the traditional set of golf clubs, but they're yours. They're for your golf swing. And that's what I would foresee as the custom fitting of the future. So well, it's, it's easy to see how you were able to come up with a fitting manual that is still like the foundation of what a lot of the OEMs use today, just based on that conversation there. It seems like your thought process is so futuristic in the way you see the ability to fit golf clubs that it's no wonder uh, the big OEMs still use kind of your, your philosophies as a foundation. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that. Okay. I just, I just know the way I, I just know the way I looked at things. And, and uh, I, I can I remember, um, being on the range with people. And uh, I was thinking, you know, what a great education for somebody like me that's designing golf clubs. I mean, I'm, I get to work with my audience all the time. So I get to see what happens in certain circumstances. And, you know, golf is, is tremendously mental. If you can put a club in somebody's hands that they think they're going to hit well, they will. And it's just amazing how it works. And I, I, have, I have seen guys hit shots that they had no business hitting. I would have bet the ranch that they couldn't hit the shot. But in their <laughs> mind, it was a piece of cake. They were going to do it. And, and, you know, things like that to me are a great education. <clears throat> yeah, so, so you, you pretty much predicted the future and how we're fitting clubs these days with basically data and, you know, now we're looking at different multi-materials and, you know, you have 50 different driver shafts that are composite and you got 50 different steel shafts or whatever. Um, how was it, you know, obviously it seems like it's relatively the same in the, at the end of the day, but what, like, what was the process if, if, Dalton and I were to come back, with, like you know, go years ago to walk up to you and get a fitting process. Like, how how would that play out? Well, first thing I would do is I would ask them uh, to tell me a little bit about yourself, what about your game. Uh, let's take a, a, a seven iron. How far do you hit your seven iron, for example? And I will tell you that easily ninety five percent of my customers didn't hit it as far as they said they did. <laughs> So that's what you're working with. And that's, that's golf. And you have to be able to manage that because I could give them a perfectly fitted seven iron and let's say they hit it eight yards shorter. They aren't going to be happy. You know, I'm sorry, but the distance. And that's the other thing is the distance is what sells golf clubs. It's not, it, it may not be the, the best idea in the world, but I've said this a hundred times. If I gave somebody two wedges and they hit one further than the other, that's the one they're going to take. <laughs> and it may not be the, <clears throat> the most consistent or the best ball flight, but it goes further. So you, you, it, it's nice to have these progressive thoughts, but there's also reality. You've got yeah, right. the marketplace and the people that you're dealing with. And so, that was my job when I first met somebody. I can remember. I, I can remember another instance. You're bringing back. You know, at, at my age, I can remember things that happened 40 years ago better than I can remember what I did this morning. So you're <laughs> you're, you're causing that phenomenon. But yeah. This guy comes for a fitting. <clears throat> got a big, huge staff bag, 
beautiful golf clubs. And he was telling me he was a one handicap and he just wanted to really get better, you know, and so on and so forth. He couldn't hit it. He, he was a one <laughs> handicap in his dreams, maybe. And that's a very difficult position for, for you know, now I'm supposed to make him better and he's not as good as he thinks he is. And uh, we, we worked for a while and it, it became a psychological fitting, not a physical fitting. And sometimes fittings are more psychological than they are physical. Yeah, definitely. I agree on that because I've, I've, there's plenty of times where, you know, you stand behind a golf club and it's addressed to the ball and you're looking at it and you're like, I can't hit this thing. Yeah. This just looks terrible. And guess what? You're not going to hit it. Exactly. And then you get something. I've seen guys who had like, they'll take like, you know, nowadays like this big, <clears throat> chunky game improvement iron and like this just looks terrible and they strike it and they don't hit the club face whatsoever and then you give them like a blade you know something a little bit more compact and small and like wow this like looks really good like this is this is sharp behind the ball now you're like oh wow like i think i can hit this and next thing you know they're peering at middle of middling pretty much everything that they they swing at it it's amazing it's a it's a psychological environment uh we used a thing at Adams we called the wow factor. And that came from custom fitting because you'd put a club in somebody's hands and you could hear them kind of mumble to themselves, wow, this really looks good. <laughs> They're going to hit it pretty well. Mm -hmm. So our philosophy around designing and building golf clubs was to make clubs that produce the wow factor as much as possible. So you're saying like, you know, back in that time, it was more the wow factor rather than like, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take this shaft and mix it with this head because it's, I don't want to, you know, of course, of course custom fitting today is, uh, you know, normal. Okay. It's, that's the way clubs are made. And it's, it's not easy to make a living if you're a professional custom fitter, because you don't design and make the, the shafts and heads and so on and so forth. You buy them. So now you've got to buy them, and you're gonna, now you've got to mark them up to some degree. And you, you don't want a $5,000 set of irons, although that does happen. I know places that do that. So you've got to have a product that, that works and do it in such a way that it's, at least in my experience over the, the, the few years I did it, that was, you know, I'll say affordable, was realistic. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, a lot of the custom fitting stuff is marketing. I mean, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but you know, <laughs> you've probably had people on that have talked to you about uh, the, the process of spining. Have you heard of that phrase? Yes. yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yep. It's phonier than a $3 bill. <laughs> it's what I used to call a golf club measurement. And it does show up. It's very dramatic, but not a ball flight measurement well custom fitting we're in the ball flight business but things like spining you can charge people extra and you have to know what you're doing and you have to be very skilled it's just that the fact that the golf ball doesn't care and i spent a lot of time with that so and there's and i think examples. that's such an <clears throat> that's such an interesting thing to think about right before like the track man came along <clears throat> there was a lot of those like 
urban myths of like, oh, well, if you, if you spine it, then, then we're doing this for you. And, and you know, there, there were so many urban myths, I feel like back in the day before really TrackMan came along and started giving you attack angle, ball speed, launch angle, spin rate, and all these metrics, then all of a sudden to really start getting into numbers before you were kind of just relying on the physical ball flight that you were seeing before your eyes, right? It wasn't truly all of these metrics that TrackMan can give you now. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but that's maybe why a lot of those urban myths came to fruition because guys were just trying to be good salesmen. Or maybe the TrackMan data isn't as uh, directly proportional to good golf results as you'd like to think it is. I like that conversation piece too. <laughs> it, is, it is a ball flight business. You're, you're talking about the, and you're going back to me, you know, asking me how I fit people. And I, I wanted to get to know them. I wanted to know, you know, what's your game like? You know, what, what, what shots do you hit that you really hate? <laughs> and <laughs> where, where does your driver go? Does it go right to left, left to right, too high, and so on and so forth? I wanted to get a mental picture of what I was dealing with. And then once I had that, it gave me direction on how to, you know, hopefully, and I'm being very honestly, hopefully uh, improve their game with a set of uh, design clubs. <clears throat> that's, that's super interesting to think about. And, and obviously that the modern game now revolves so much around track, man. And, and to think, and, and it, it makes a lot of sense <clears throat> to think for the average golfer, you know, not your top one. 1% tour pro for your average golfer, those numbers on the track, man, probably really don't make a whole lot of sense when you're, when you're going to fit clubs and you're really just trying to get, you know, Joe and Jim and Jill from across the street down the fairway. You're not trying to get them over 300 yards and into the top 1% on tour. You're just trying to make them have a happier round of golf. I used to say that uh, custom fitting was basically A and F airborne and forward. <laughs> and if and if you could accomplish that you were you you had a successful day that sounds kind of silly but if i could help them get the ball up in the air and in a in a in the in the right direction that was a good thing that was that's what that's what played the game and and uh of course again when i did this back in the 90s we didn't have track man anyway so i never used any electronic equipment it was always done by eye and that took such a trained eye to truly understand um, right what there. The, yeah, what the difference was between what was happening in the golf swing, what was happening at, with the golf club, um, and, and what changes to make to truly make a difference in, in somebody's game. I mean, that's that's the true art of what club fitting used to be. Yeah, it's – it's uh, well, I'll I tell you what I just did to myself. You know, this is going to sound weird, but I qualify. Uh, and I do. I still play. I play three days a week, and right. and you know, they, <clears throat> fortunately, I play with some nice guys, and they look the other way for the stupid shots I hit, and so on. I cut my driver down. Now that's directly against everything that goes on in the marketplace today, right? How long are drivers? Forty-six inches, and there's there's talk about the USGA limiting the driver shaft lengths. Mm -hmm. And what the, 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 the technology today is that's okay. I'm going to give you a 46 or even a 47 inch driver shaft, but it only weighs 43 grams. So you're going to be able to handle it. Okay. And the, and the net result of that is more club head speed and more distance. And, uh, and you're getting all excited and you're paying 450 bucks for a driver. That's what goes on. <clears throat> 
Well, technically speaking, the key to hitting the ball further is to hit it at the center of percussion or the sweet spot. Now you're delivering the most energy to the golf ball, and that's what you want to have happen. So you can, uh, and I've experimented on myself with this, so if you could, I'll give you that super long shaft, lightweight shaft, all the bells and whistles and so on, and you'll hit it, let's say, three-quarters of an inch off of center. And three-quarters of an inch isn't much. But three-quarters of an inch off of center is about 30 yards. All of that distance that you're trying to get only works, only works if you're hitting the ball in the center of the club face or, or the center of percussion. So I, I've said to myself, I'm not doing that. I could tell by the, by the I will say feel, but uh, the, the, we could go on another subject because I'll make a statement for you. There is no such thing as feel, but uh, we, I could get into that if you want to. But I could tell by the strike of the ball of the club face that it wasn't solid. Sure. And so I said, well, but barnyard, you jerk, you're trying to hit, you know, solid shots. So let's make the driver a little shorter and make it a little easier for you. You know, you're an old man, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I cut my drivers down to 43 inches. And I can I can honestly say I don't think I hit it any shorter. Hmm. But I hit a lot more shots better. And right that's off the sweet thing. spot. Yeah. I love it. Now, and that, that brings me into the question. And, and obviously I, I will definitely want to get into what you mean by no, f there is no such thing as feel, but where does that translate? Um, you know, not hitting the sweet spot from the driver, like to the irons. I know you said almost a 30 yard difference in, in that driver. I tow a lot of my irons. What does that mean for some of us that just hit everything consistently off the toe and just have a hard time bringing it in? to the center of the club when it comes to like the, the four five and six irons. Yeah. Well, depending, of course, depending on your speed, you're giving up distance and you're also giving up, you know, the, you know, especially with an iron, because with a driver, you're hitting it to an area, right? That's even if it's a tight fairway, it's maybe 30 yards wide or something like that. But with an iron, you're hitting at a target. And if you're hitting it on the toe, you're making the job of hitting the ball up into the air under the target a heck of a lot harder. So the question is, <clears throat> what, you know, what can we do? If you were my customer, if I were still club fitting, mm -hmm. and I used to put, uh, you know, tape on the face of the clubs so I could see where impact was being made and so on and so forth. And if I saw a consistent pattern, let's say of toe hits, you're my customer, then my job would be, well, what can I do to bring the strike towards the center of the golf club? And... <laughs> You know, sometimes it's go take a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I've only, heard that once or twice. <laughs> there's only there's only so much I can do. I mean, this is not we're not talking about miracle stuff here, but if your golf swing is such that it throws the the angle of the club approaching the ball out so you strike it on the toe, you might be better off to fix that part of your game than rather because the irony is if I fix so to speak the club. And the, 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 the ultimate product is to have the ball strike closer to the face, which is what we're talking about. And then you go take a lesson and you improve. Guess what's going to happen? 
you're you're not going to be as effective with the irons as you as you should be. And that was always something to remember. I know that sounds kind of funny, but I I I had because I when I was club fitting, I'm working down the range from Hank Haney. You know, was one of the great teachers, and I got to be aware of the fact that if 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 I start fooling around with these clubs and somehow bend them and so on and so forth, so you could hit them pretty good. Then he goes down and takes a lesson. You know, Hank's job just got a heck of a lot harder. So there is a reality factor here. <clears throat> yeah, it seems like if you guys go back and forth, uh, you're both are hoping for a miracle. If you're offsetting him and he's offsetting you, uh, you're, you're trying to work miracles you just can't provide. Well, my, my philosophy was, it's happened more than once, go take lessons. Don't don't look to me to make a set of clubs for the way you're swinging at the ball. You're aggressive. And I think that's I think that's such a big thing in today's world that might get lost, right? Is is that lesson part of the game? Everyone's trying to just look for the sparkly new driver or the sparkly new set of clubs that's you know dubbed to do this or dubbed to do that. And, and Dante, I think you can maybe pile on top of this of just like what we see from a consumer standpoint is just buy these clubs and so much extra yards and it'll fix your slice and whatever it's like maybe go to your local pga pro first and he'll fix your slice and you don't have to spend eighteen hundred dollars on a set of brand new irons certainly within reason i mean you know i could i could go to pga pros for the rest of my life and I, my swing's not going to get any better it is what it is but you're right the within reason you know, you want to set a have a set of parameters where it's a it's a win win deal where the clubs are right, the the lessons are lined up with the club, so to speak. Now, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely something I think I've always advocated for because I've taken lessons for a while and they and they always seem to help whether you want to listen right off the bat or not. They always <laughs> seem to help down the road. Um, you mentioned feel, and, and I want to get into that here a little bit. Um, your opinion on feel, and I, I'm just very intrigued on what it means when you say that you don't really uh, feel like it exists, I guess, is is what your uh, stance was. is and, and what do you mean by that for, like, the average golfer? <clears throat> feel is sound. Feel is vibrations. It's, uh, it... I've heard that before. Oh, yeah. yeah. They say a lot, a lot of the feel actually comes from the sound, like – Oh, it's such a soft feel. Like you talk about like the Odyssey putters with their inserts. Like, oh, it feels so soft. It feels so soft. Well, if you listen to it, it comes out with no noise. Yes. And then yeah. they're like, oh, that's why it's soft. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the infamous solid shock that we're all familiar with is absence of vibrations. That means that <laughs> energy that you're producing to the golf ball has been delivered to the golf ball. And you'll see it in the in the flight of the golf ball if you deliver it inefficiently and hit it off center or maybe in a case of way out in the toe or something like that it doesn't sound the same it's got that clanky sound or whatever you want what do you really want to call it well when you hear that that's vibration and that means that you're not you're not being as efficient as you could be I love that. I've actually never heard that, Dante. So that, uh, yeah, that just you'll, maybe... you'll, uh, you'll notice a difference when, because I, I did watch a video probably a couple of years ago in regards to that. And someone mentioned, like, like uh, it's basically the sound. And if that's something that's not necessarily like in your mind, you won't notice it. But now you'll probably go out and play and you'll say you flush like a perfect iron shot. You're like, Oh, that felt so soft. It felt like it just bounced. It just yeah. jumped and never came off the club. Well, you hit it pretty much perfect, and 
it just popped off. Yeah, it's quiet. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I will always remember 8,000 years ago, but it was at some tournament, and I was, I was actually leaving, and the practice area was in between me and where my car was parked. So, to, so I'm walking over to where my car was parked, and who's hitting balls all by himself at the corner of the range, but Sevi Ballesteros. And I walk, I, I, I kind of walk over there so I could watch it, but he turns around and he kind of glares at me like, you know, the reason I'm down here is so you clowns aren't going to bother me. I, I, got, <laughs> I got that part. I understood that. But I never said anything. And I sat down on the grass. There was a little bank there and just watched. And there are two things that I remember from that experience. One is how quiet the shots were. It was it wasn't whack. It was tick. It was like tick 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 with irons. And I, was, I couldn't get over it how quiet they were. Well, he wasn't using some kind of a soundproof golf ball or you know anything else. But what he was doing was incredibly efficient as far as hitting the ball at the center percussion. The other thing is that I waited till he finished, and he left, and I went down and looked at the area where he was hitting golf balls. And it was like a guy had taken a razor and cut these beautifully square depth divots, you know, the both the length and the width of the divot plus the depth of the divot. I mean, it was like somebody had operated on the area where he was hitting. <laughs> and I never forgot that because it just showed me how, how uh, efficient he was at, at striking a golf ball. And uh, years again, years later, uh, I played golf with Mo Norman, the famous Canadian golfer, and it was the same way. His shots were incredibly quiet. Well, because he was he was you know incredibly efficient. He was hitting them the way they're supposed to be. I I chuckled earlier because my mind's being blown. Uh, I've played golf since I was five years old. I'm now 28, and this is the first time I'm ever hearing <laughs> about this. And as you explain the Seve you know, kind of correlation. And as you explain, like, as I'm thinking in my head, right, I've been to so many professional golf tournaments and what is everyone talking about? Man, the guy just sounds different, right? Like when they hit the ball, it sounds different. And like, it's popping off like lights in my head. It's like, well, that's what it is. It is. It's sound. When it, when someone's puring a golf ball, it's sound rather than, than feeling a good shot. It's sound and vibration. I just, you're blowing my mind. And it, it amazes me. It took me that long to hear that from someone in the golf industry. Well, it is what it is. And, and I love it. As I said before, things like that stuck with me. I, I paid attention to them. I, I just, uh, uh, I, I can't explain why. I can only say that uh, it was just the way I looked at things. And, you know, maybe I was weird. You know, maybe it was different. I don't know. But it, it just it just was what it was. <laughs> Hey, it's those little nuances that, you know, like you said, build day after day and year after year to end up making the career that you had, at, you know, and the inf impact you had within the golf industry and obviously uh, being recognized as, as such over uh, over the years and especially this past year at the Texas Golf uh, Hall of Fame. So um, with all that being said and with all of the, you know, little nuances you picked up along the way, looking back over the whole 
if you could put like a crystal ball around it and looking out, you know, Adam's tight lies and just all the club fitting and all the experiences you've had with pros along the way, if there's one thing that really sticks out and, and you say is the wow factor above everything, um, what has it been over the years that maybe just separates, you know, the guys like Seve, the guys like Mo Norman, the guys like Tiger Woods even, um, and, and just from a club perspective and the way they use their clubs to, to become such great golfers, what set those guys apart? Um, is it that sound that they make? Is it, is that what set them apart or, or was it something else that really put them above the rest? Well, I think that sound that we're referring to is, is, is the result. They had the ability to hit the ball at the center of the club. I'll, I'll give you guys a, a you can try this. I've been doing this for a few years now. You got friends that play golf, right? Got mm-hmm. a friend that play golf that say just finished a round of golf. What was the best shot you hit during the round? You, I've always gotten an answer when I've done that. What was the oh? Are you kidding me? A number twelve, man! I hit a fairway wood on number twelve. I just nailed it, you know. Or it could be a chip, or it could be anything. Well, the, the difference is that for us guys, for, for most of us guys, it was easy to remember that one shot because we don't hit that many of them. <laughs> but for the tour, wasn't, wasn't it Hogan said that he only hit like five or six shots around uh, that he thought were the pure, that he thought were perfect, so to speak? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that, that's a huge, that's a, that's a big deal. When you you try you you experiment. You ask people that question. Hey, what was the best what was the best shot you hit during that round that you just played? And it, and I, I the, the thing that to, gets to me was there's always an answer. Oh, I don't know. Gee, I can't tell you. They're all about the same. Now there'll be a there'll be a shot that will stand out. Second thing, you can try this with uh, guests, so to speak. Does uh, Jeff Flex make any difference? Now, I know you don't trust me now, but does does Jeff Jeff Flex make any difference, seriously? I would say yes, absolutely. Okay, Okay. then I'm going to ask you a question. (laughs) The most successful irons in the history of the golf industry, as far as broad appeal sales, they they were actually on allocation for the Ping I-2s. Every Ping I-2 ever made in the history of time had an X shaft in it. How's that wow. work? Tell me how that explain that to me. I'm talking grandma and grandpa. I'm talking young, strong college kids. I'm talking everybody played X. Oh, man. My, my brain is becoming mush. Because Dante and I have had so many conversations about why it matters. And we've had so many people tell us it matters. And then, I mean, I know because I've heard this. I've seen it. Um, I, I've seen the example you're given. And I'm like now that we're rounding back to it, it's like I couldn't. I don't know why it works. You give up? I do give up. <laughs> I see Dante's face. He gives up, too. <laughs> Well, there's still, uh, you know, go, no, go specific type answer. There's a couple of things. And the first one we talked about before makes no difference what it is. If you think you're going to hit it well, you are. The game is played by humans. It's not by machines, which have to line up and so on. The second thing is, and it's 
the second one kind of interests me because I'm still in the business, so to speak. And it revolves around with the way that we were doing things. Karsten wanted an X shaft <clears throat> because he didn't want the shaft to move. He didn't want the shaft to oscillate slightly so the so that the club face would approach the ball at, at anything other than square. Because if it does, if the club face is approaching the ball other than square, you've got a problem, okay? You're, 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 you're one down before you make contact, so to speak. And we've been making shafts. We, I say that we, it's our little company in, in Texas. We started with a putter shaft, actually, with the same philosophy. Because when we measured putter shafts, we had a guy with just a, a, a fluky thing that did NASA work. And he had a camera that, that, that photographed at 100,000 frames a second. And what we learned was that the putter shaft oscillated very, very slightly, affecting the putter face at, at impact. So we designed the putter shaft so that it prevented that from happening. Well, except for the fact that you could do that with making the putter shaft actually wider. That, that, that certainly is one approach or heavier. But when you've done that, and this now you're getting into club design. When you do that, you introduce a variable that is the golfer has to adjust to. So you may fix problem A and hand them problem B, which is worse than problem A in the first place. <laughs> so you've got to make a shaft that is designed very intricately so it keeps the putter face square but is the same overall weight and the same overall feel and balance point so the golfer can adjust to it the reason for this phenomena is if you just look at the history of putter heads go back to what i was playing when i was your guy's age and so on what did we play we played blades and bullseyes and the heads were very light compared to the heads today because of the work on on off-center hits and, and uh, twist and so on, but the heads are much, much heavier. Well, the putter shaft never changed. So you kept changing the environment of the head and just kept stuck, sticking the same shaft in there. And after a while, the shaft kind of says, hey, wait a minute, this is a little too much for me. So if you just stop and think about it, of all of the, all of the changes, all of the stuff that you guys hear about when you talk to people uh, in the golf equipment business, and yet the putter shaft hadn't changed in 70 years until now, of course. So oh, and, and for those for those who aren't aware of what he's talking about, he's referencing breakthrough golf technology and their um, stability, balance, putter, shafts. Um, and from what I understand, you guys are branching out into wedges and mm -hmm. woods as well, which is just absolutely incredible. Um, Barney, you are just a consummate learner and i think knowledge base for the game it seems like you will never stop wanting to uh to dive in and, and fix issues when it comes to golf clubs well as i said earlier the only problem with that is that i can't remember what i had for breakfast this morning so <laughs> we'll see how that works out but if you just you know in my mind all the things we talked about square hits the the, the feel the, the sound the quiet sound and so on all of that relates to the club face being squared impact. And, uh, you know, anything you can do in that direction helps a golfer. 
I love it. Well, I know we could go on and on about the the different stances, and I, I think I could sit here with a pen and pad and probably write down things I could learn the rest of the night. But uh, we'll, we'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening, Barney. Uh, absolute pleasure having you back on the show. Um, congratulations uh, from us and all of our listeners in, of getting inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, we really appreciate all the knowledge you spilled with us tonight. I know I'm going to re-listen uh, and just see if, what else I can learn. Uh, it's been a blast having you back on the show. Okay, well, thanks for having me on, guys. And if I screwed you up, it's too bad. Yes, sir. You were an absolute pleasure to have. So we, we enjoyed every second of it. Okay. Thanks again. Yeah. Take care, Barney. Thank you. <laughs>